Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us in this very special episode of Newsflash, because today, fresh off appearances on Chapo Trap House, The Majority Report, Young Turks, all that, those great outlets, we have joining us author of We've Got People, from Jesse Jackson to AOC, The End of Big Money and the Rise of a Movement, all about the history of the modern Democratic Party, from, uh, as I said, Jesse Jackson to today. Ryan Grimm, also D.C. Bureau Chief at The Intercept, joining us. Ryan, thank you so much for coming on and uh, giving us your time, even though you're uh, in the lift. Uh, it's my pleasure. All right. So, yeah, I'd like to start off with uh, we've, we've Got the People. When I first saw the title of that book on Twitter, uh, I was like, oh, this, this kind of rings a little bit of a bell because, of course, I uh, have always been a fan of and kind of an admirer of Alexandrios Ocasio-Cortez. And I understand this was uh, originally from her campaign ad, her her very viral campaign ad that she put out on YouTube. That's right. The, the climactic line of it, to me, did a great job of distilling down to its essence what the, what the conflict is between the kind of progressive Democrats and their the corporate wing of the party. She said, you know, this is a battle um, of money against people. They've got money, we've got people. Um, and I thought that that, that, was, that just... That nailed it right there. Um, so I so I stole it. Yeah, that definitely it's a really good uh, kind of impersonation. That kind of reminded me of the uh, "for the many, not the few" line that they have uh, in labor, yeah. and I thought that was that that kind of encapsulates the whole kind of uh, centrist uh, leftist fight, which is really what your book here is uh, all about, from what I understand. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and we really kind of know, at least from your book, where it starts off. I'm sure there's probably been uh, other similar conflicts before this, but. Back in the 1980s, you talk about the first real centrist kind of leftist uh, conflict uh, was back in the 1980s, 1988 with Reverend Jesse Jackson's presidential campaign. And what what were the kind of the competing visions uh, from the ostensibly left side of things back then? Right. So there were kind of two responses that the party made to or the, that, that people within the party suggested that they could make to the rise of, of Ronald Reagan and this, this new right. You know, the, the one party said, let's. Let's uh, give people something they actually want. You know, let's let's put together a populist, uh, progressive coalition of the working class, black, white, brown, put everyone together, and that's the only way you're going to challenge the kind of rise of capital through the person of Reagan and, and this new Republican Party. And the, the alternative said, no, there's actually nothing fundamentally wrong with the Democratic Party. All we needed to do is to raise a little bit more money from major corporations, go to Wall Street, and then spend that money on 30-second television ads uh, and, and more sophisticated 
uh, campaigning in, in ways that we had done before. You know, 1976 really opened up the, the floodgates of money in politics, and Republicans definitely exploited that in 1980 with a lot of negative television ads. So, Demo so some Democrats said, well, all we need to do is just match them dollar for dollar. We'll be fine. But, of course, that means you can't, you can't run a populist progressive message because that would be in direct conflict um, with the, the, the corporate money you're trying to get. So the only thing you can do then, if you're going to try to appeal to white working class voters, is throw in a, you know, a couple doses of racism. Yeah, uh, that definitely uh, that definitely that's sounds. The, that's the the course that the centrist wing decided to take. Yeah, that definitely sounds somewhat uh, familiar, minus really the uh, the racism that we see today. Uh, but it was interesting to kind of hear that the Jesse Jackson with kind of the Rainbow Coalition bringing everyone together and focusing normally. Uh, or really kind of on economic struggles, kind of very uh, Marx-like idea of just like we have to put racial and kind of ethnic and religious divides aside and focus on really getting uh, economic justice, which I found to be kind of interesting about this campaign that I was interesting to find out about uh, in your uh, book. And so, like, was there was there any, before this, was there really any opposition to that kind of overarching uh, democratic view of things that we need to go to money, uh, we need to go to Wall Street and get as mu much money from these interests as possible. Or was Jesse Jackson really the first kind of like big leftist figure? I mean, he was the one that had the most prominent insurgent presidential campaign on on that message, and he ran in '84 and '88. So you know, the 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 move really only came in the early '80s. Um, you know, people talk about. Uh, you know, people think about the, our political structures as just immutable and written in stone, and that this is how they've just always been since the since Adam and Eve. Um, but that's not right. You know, the, the coalitions have been shifting, you know, constantly over a couple hundred years, and, and it was really in the early '80s when when they made their move towards Wall Street. Because ironically, at the time, Wall Street was not uh, was was the least offensive of the interest groups that they could go to because it was. It was sleepy bankers at the time. It wasn't the kind of toxic, sophisticated financial products that we think of today. And so, you know, they didn't want to go to the car makers because they represented the, you know, the auto workers. Uh, they didn't want to go to a big oil because they represented a lot of, you know, enviro, enviro groups. Um, and so Wall Street was like, well, you know, they're not really in direct opposition to anybody in particular. So this is kind of safe, clean money. Um, and, that, and it has just evolved from there. Yeah, that's definitely interesting how that kind of turned over time and really the Democratic Party didn't truly adapt to that. And an interesting thing about this kind of conflict in this 1988 campaign was the real kind of success off the bat that we saw with uh, Jesse Jackson that a lot of people don't really pay attention to today or really remember today. They think, oh, really, this kind of leftist ideology came about really with out of nowhere with Bernie Sanders. But no, we do have some kind of a prior instances of that. Uh, what was it, what was it like really with uh, Jesse Jackson's campaign early on in the in the primary stages and how did it kind of go awry? You know, it, it, you know, in '84 he jumped in very last minute, <clears throat> just as kind of a messaging campaign, and he surprised everybody by being able to register several million voters <laughs> and and do fairly well in some. Uh, some primaries and he ended up picking up a couple million votes by the time the convention came around and so he figured well if i did so well jumping in late without even trying like what would happen if we put together a real campaign and so 
And so he did that with, you know, some real echoes of Bernie Sanders from, from 2016 to 2020. Yeah. And so he got in with a full staff, ran a national campaign and, and, and it took off. And, and, you know, after three dozen primaries and caucuses, he was neck and neck with Michael Dukakis for the, um, for the nomination. So it, there was a moment there where, you know, he was a very, very plausible contender. And uh, what was kind of the reaction from the the people who really wanted to go to Wall Street and were really, I'm assuming, kind of profiting off of this this kind of system that was already in place, where they were able to get a lot of donations, get up and tight with the the big uh, like kind of money and interest in Wall Street. What was their reaction oh, to his campaign? The reaction was apocalyptic. You know, just warnings that if you nominate Jesse Jackson, that the party, as you know it, is is going to be completely wiped off the face of the earth. Um, and Jackson at the time didn't have the ability to translate the energy that had, was surging into ca- into small dollar campaign contributions the way that Bernie Sanders can now. Uh. You know, four years later, Jerry Brown tried to you know now that recently the California governor at the time a progressive tried to run a uh, a similar campaign to Jackson, and his his innovation was at all of his speeches, uh, he would mentioned his uh, 800 number and, and he wouldn't take more than a hundred dollars from any single donor and so that was his version of trying to get you know, small internet money before the internet well it's interesting but, but jackson didn't have any of that and so you know he didn't have he didn't he wasn't able to kind of get get that bump that you, that you could get nowadays yeah there's definitely no kind of a uh, act blue that we saw back right. then in the 1980s yeah right. It's interesting because there's so many different things like disadvantages that he had with kind of the reaction of the Democratic Party and all that. And I mean, Bernie's idea seemed crazy when it was first announced. I can only imagine how Jesse Jackson coming out saying stuff that probably could have been even to the left, maybe, of Bernie Sanders, arguably, uh, back in the 1980s would have seen him coming from uh, an African-American man at the time like that. Do you think if he was allowed to kind of continue uninterrupted? Would his campaign have been successful in 1988 America? In the general election? Yeah. You know, uh, George H.W. Bush was a very unpopular vice president. Um, who knows? You know, it's, it's very easy to say absolutely not. But, um, but, you know, people didn't think that Obama could be elected in 2008 um, before, before he was. Now, you know, if you polled people uh, in 2006, is the country going to elect a black president in 2008? You would have had like 1% just accidentally saying yes. Um, so, you know, people people can't imagine things until they actually happen. And so, um, you know, maybe it, maybe it would have been possible. Um, maybe he could have registered enough voters um, and, and made it happen. But if not, you know, he still reorients the country toward that or, or the party toward that that idea that that the object of politics is to try to improve the lives of people rather than just to try to um, hold on to some modicum of power for a political party. Yeah, that's definitely kind of a, a perspective on politics, in my opinion, that really has been somewhat missing, at least in the in the 1990s and kind of after Jesse Jackson kind of well, went away a little bit. Um, and I mean, after because out, after Jesse Jackson, uh, Jesse Jackson obviously was unsuccessful. Um, like what uh, we we know that Bill Clinton came along, and how how 
did the Democratic Party change in terms of like who was elected? Uh, what what were they like pushing and what was their what was the position? So what was like the state of left well, in the nineteen nineties? They internalized the idea that they were that we all live in a conservative country and that if Democrats are gonna you know win any elections anywhere, they're gonna have to anywhere other than San Francisco, they're gonna have to um, you know pretend that they're as conservative, they're almost as conservative as the Republicans, but just not quite. Uh, and so that's what the Clinton years really really offered. And so they would try to um, go to the right of uh, Republicans on some issues, um, which they which they called triangulation, which is but is really just being right wing, um, as as a way to to show their toughness. Hmm. Oh, yeah, I do remember uh, that kind of a third way option on, under uh, Bill Clinton uh, taking taking shape, and what I've read about that. But there's a it's definitely uh, kind of a cr- crazy time to think about where being a liberal was almost kind of just like scoring at like, what, you're a liberal? It's cr- cr- crazy. But like that is that was definitely a kind of very interesting time. And something that I saw uh, in one of your um, one of your interviews about this, this subject, which is kind of saying that there that about Democratic primary voters, they have this kind of thing where we have to focus on being a Republican and who the media tells me, like we, we heard back in 1990, internalized the notion that uh, America is a conservative country, that it has to be the most conservative candidate because that's the one who would be elected. That's what the media tells me. And I thought it very interesting that Jesse Jackson, uh, was everyone said about him, he would never be elected. He was too conservative. Bernie, they said that about Bernie, said that even about uh, Howard Dean, which I do want to get to in a little bit. But like, how how do you think is the most effective way to kind of like break that that mold of uh, uh, previous like misconceptions? Well, to, I mean, the two ways. One, you've got to you've got to demonstrate. You got to convince people. Um, you're not going to convince them that that uh, electability doesn't matter. So what you have to do is convince them that their notions of, of what is electable are wrong. You know, you can ask them, did you think Donald Trump was electable? Uh, you know, anybody who lives through 2016 shouldn't really be talking with much confidence about what what could happen in the future. It's very few people you know, predicted that that could happen. In fact, Hillary Clinton was giddy when Trump won the nomination because she assumed that she was just going to coast into the White House. Um, and then you have to say, OK, well, if your assumptions are wrong, let's look at your track record. You thought Dukakis was electable. You thought Mondale was. You thought Kerry was. You thought Gore was. You were wrong, wrong, wrong. The, you know, the. The one time that the Democrats nominated somebody who the pundits said couldn't be elected was Barack Hussein Obama. And he was the first Democrat uh, to get more than 50 percent of the vote in presidential elections since the 1970s. So maybe learn that lesson um, instead of uh, thinking, thinking, you know, with, uh, think, you know, thinking with fear, um, thinking it through, with, uh, you know, so. Uh, and then the other thing would be, well, look, let's look at some particular people like Joe Biden. Is he electable? Well, uh, he ran in 1988. He got hammered because he's a terrible candidate then when he was young and had still had his mind together. Uh, 2008, he ran again, just again finished with 1%. Um, and, and now, you know, he's gotten back in for a third time and he just keeps flipping his positions and his campaign says that his strategy is to not campaign so that people don't see him like that does not speak of somebody with a lot of confidence. So, um, 
that's the, I think, approach you got to take rather than trying to say, well, Joe Biden's wrong on the issues because most people already agree that he's wrong. Um, they just think that it doesn't matter. Yeah, that's interesting. Unless they kind of want to be like, I feel like they also is the element of wanting to be associated with the Obama years and uh, all that kind of stuff. Um, uh, the, the positivity right. of Obama years and just kind of like the normality of it, like things weren't like on fire all the time, it's, it felt like for a lot of Democratic people. Uh, and I think that's kind of very interesting because the Democrats, they have so much really to, to gain back and a lot of lost ground to gain back under this time where... I think really in the in the 1990s, I mean, the, you could uh, tell me uh, otherwise about this, but like uh, that could be really, in my opinion, when NAFTA and TPP, especially NAFTA, were signed, they really si- uh, decided to lose credibility with working people that we saw a lot of happening in in uh, in the Trump election. So, like, right. w- would you say that was true? Like, the the, the time they lo- lost the most credibility was under the kind of Bill Clinton Clinton t- uh, triangulation era when outsourcing really began. I mean, that was a huge part of it. It was, an, it was kind of an ongoing thing. Um, but, yeah, the most pertinent lesson for the upcoming election is that the key states that a Democrat is going to need to win in 2020 are Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, and Michigan. And those are states that, you know, think that NAFTA and the, the free trade policies of both parties over the last 30 years have gutted uh, the, their entire way of life up there. And so... You're going to put up uh, if you're trying to put up against Trump, who is just going to constantly repeat that refrain. Joe Biden, who supported and continues to support all of those policies and people that think gutted their hometowns, then that's one way you can screw screw up an almost unlosable election. Yeah, that's that's definitely going to be a, a t- that would be a something that would not be very appealing and something that Hillary Clinton, I think, really did to screw up that kind of a unlosable election. Uh, but if we look back again to this this kind of time where like NAFTA, like the outsourcing and the kind of gunning of these manufactured communities that you mentioned was uh, really beginning, um, what was it like during that time of triangulation, third way, Bill Clinton? What was it like to kind of be in a left-wing position and believe these kind of left-wing things? Well, the, you know, they, people felt very isolated. People, people felt like they just didn't have um, a, a, a toehold in the party. That the, the Clinton wing was uh, was so dominant that you know they were going to be in the wilderness for as long as they could, and the best that they could do would be to try to sand off some of the rougher edges of, of neoliberalism, and so. Now, for the first time in like 30 years, the left uh, is feeling its oats and finally believes like it could be actually leading the coalition rather than being led in it. Hmm. And, you know, the, the key, there was one of the main responses that you saw in 2000 was a lot of voters, a lot of progressives leaving the Democratic Party and voting for Ralph Nader, um, which, you know, like it or not, ended up costing the election to, to George W. Bush. Yeah, that kind of dissatisfaction was definitely, I'm sure it was something that was probably pretty pertinent uh, throughout the 1990s. And obviously, the left is down, the left is really isolated during that time, and really, not really prominent again until 2004, uh, with the candidacy kind of of Howard Dean. How does his campaign, in your opinion, compare to Jesse Jackson's back in 1988? Uh, Bernie Sanders and Jesse Jackson? Oh, no, Howard Dean and Jesse Jackson. 
Oh, Howard Dean and Jesse Jackson. So uh, Howard Dean is a much more conservative candidate than than Jackson, but he was uh, he was just dispositionally willing to to confront uh, George W. Bush. He was willing to take a strong stand against the war. And so people rewarded, you know, lefties rewarded him for that. They were like, at least somebody was fighting for them. Uh, and so like Jackson, Dean had a, had a massive kind of grassroots campaign behind him. Unlike Jackson, Dean had the ability to convert that into uh, Internet organizing and, and small dollars into his campaign. And so that made him uh, a more a more credible candidate in, in the eyes of the press, even, even though he ultimately fell victim to the same electability trap where the Democratic voters decided that an anti-war doctor was the wrong guy to take on Bush in a time of war. And they needed a veteran, someone with, you know, unimpeachable credentials. And of course, his credentials were, you know, immediately impeached. Yeah. So, like, what was kind of the media coverage um, about what was the media coverage about Howard Dean's uh, campaign like at the time? Was it very kind of dismissive in the way we see with uh, Bernie Sanders today, or was his campaign? No, no see what, what what they learned, and this is a lesson that a lot of the activists around him picked up, is that the media isn't actually driven on a day to day basis by any corporate agenda. It wants it wants the best story that it can find, um, and if that aligns with the corporate agenda, great. If it doesn't, oh, that's so that's okay, and so. Yeah. What they what they learned is that something new and titillating to the media was were these these meetups. Um, you know, the, all of these people who were enthusiastic about Dean, who were who were meeting and doing grassroots stuff at, without the direction of the campaign, and using the internet to do it. And back then, the media loved writing stories about anything that had to do with the internet because it was such a fascinating new innovation in, in, innovation in, a, in American life. And so. They exploited that and exploited the small dollar fundraising to drive media attention. So in other words, they'd say, we're going to try to raise $7 million online. And they'd, they'd raise a million and they'd post that on their their site. And then the press would write that, that a new thing was happening in politics, that that the campaign had raised a million dollars without without anybody giving more than you know 50 bucks or whatever. Um, and that becomes then a media story. And the media story then draws attention to it, and then the attention brings more money. And now they've raised two million, and now they can get more stories about it because now they've no, now the now the campaign has raised two million dollars without taking any big money. And so they learned that the media can actually be your friend if you can get this virtuous cycle going. Yeah. So it, it seems kind of like from what you're saying, like they, they were kind of captivated and a little bit uh, awestruck in a way about mm-hmm. the. Yeah. Uh, about the campaign and like what I was wondering is how did that campaign fail to uh, bear fruit? Like I know you said the electability trap, but was his campaign just like kind of poorly run or did the media really start to kind of turn on any turn on them near the end? Uh, the, the, it, the moment and what, the reason I say it's an electability trap, the moment he really fell apart was heading into Iowa. Uh, he said something like, you know, they, we, I, I believe they captured Saddam Hussein in some hole somewhere in Iraq. And there was a question about whether or not he should be executed. And I think Dean may have been against the death penalty. But in any event, he said um, that he he did not think that Saddam Hussein should get the death penalty. And to the 
Democratic primary voters pretty much all agreed with that. You know, they're mostly against the death penalty. But they, they overthink things, and they said, well, okay, I'm against the death penalty, but the rest of America, you know, less than two years after um, the attacks of 9-11, uh, even though Saddam Hussein didn't have anything to do with those, um, you know, they're going to want blood. And, and so if we're in, a, in wartime putting up against a, an anti-war, anti-death penalty doctor who, you know, wants to uh, let Saddam Hussein live a life of comfort, um, you know, Bush is going to kill us. And so, that, so he, really, he really collapsed after what was called this gaffe. Um, of how how Saddam Hussein should be treated, um, huh. and that was that was kind of the beginning of the end for him. That's interesting because I thought it was all about like the scream, but I mean maybe he was not. done by the scream. Like, yeah, he, yeah, the scream the scream was just the the exclamation point. Um, but yeah, he was he was done by then. Well, that's that's I didn't definitely didn't know that because like that is kind of something that they were just he was just abandoned. Really, was it by the voters who kind of. Uh, didn't like it because of how it played against the Republican Party. It was more like the yeah. media. Huh? Because it was more like yeah. the media probably saying this is probably saying similar things to. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's it's definitely interesting at the time because I was get cable uh, starting to come up as well. So that's probably a, a more of a pro- proliferation there at that time. So after, after uh, 2004 and things not really working out the way Democrats wanted to. How, how did they uh, plan ahead for the midterm elections in 2006? Um, wait, say that again? How, how, do, how, how did the Democrats plan uh, to kind of gain some lost ground out uh, for the 2006 elections? What was their kind of comeback plan after the 2004 loss? So it was the same plan that they ran in the 80s, mm-hmm. That they were they were going to go to Wall Street. They were going to raise as much money as they possibly could, and they were going to find the most conservative Democrats they could to, to run in every in every district. Um, and you know, in, in in a significant number of these cases, the uh, a progressive challenger beat the conservative Democrat in the primary, and Rahm Emanuel, the DCCC chairman, walked away from the race and publicly said. Well, Democrats can't win this race. The left has blown it for us. Uh, and then, uh, despite that, and despite having no money, the, the progressive went on and won the race in the general election. Um, but a lot of that got overlooked, and Ron Manuel became elevated to this hero status and, and the, the strategy of finding the most conservative Democrat you can and pumping them full of corporate money became the, the, the how-to guide in Washington that's that's something kind of very interesting because I I listened to this, uh, your interview that you did on uh, Chapo Trapas where you talked really kind of a lot uh, about Rahm Emanuel how he kind of like grew up and like uh, and what his kind of background in politics was but what uh, Rahm definitely seemed to be kind of different than your average operative because he was so uh, really widely publicized in the media and yeah. how, how was he able to kind of achieved that like what made rom like so different so special in a way so i mean he had a he had a preternatural ability to to generate press um you know he's just like his his brother ari gold uh ari emmanuel um you know he he has a, a a hyper personality that that people gravitate toward um 
and there wasn't a lot of alternative media at the time either. So that kind of, you know, left him as uh, the guy who, to tell his own story with, with that, without anybody telling the, the other side of it. Um, and that really ends up shaping then the, the, the House and, and Congress as, as Obama is trying to you know, push his own agenda through there. And of course, by then, um, Emmanuel becomes uh, Obama's chief of staff. And so is you know, working with the very people that he recruited to, to be in the House. Um, but I should actually get going because I've got a thing that I have to run to. Um, do you want to do one question, like wrap it up? Um, all right. So, yeah, just uh, very quickly, what was your um, like? W- w- how would you say where did the uh, Democrats go from here? Like, wh- what did you see them have? Where do you see the left going from here in terms of the future twenty twenty presidential race, um, passing key goals, yeah. stuff like that? Yeah, I mean, the question is, can they keep can they keep notching some wins and 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 growing their own credibility? Um, you know, they're they're going to run a a challenger to Henry Cuellar in Texas, which is going to be a very, very tough race. But if they can pull that off, that'll be interesting. Um, but, you know, you know, can, can they, can, you know, either Warren or Bernie, you know, emerge from the, the, with the democratic nomination, if either of them does, they would probably be the most liberal, um, you know, nominee ever in the history of the democratic party, you know, more so than, uh, more so than FDR, more so than Lincoln, I mean Lincoln was a Republican, but that was the that was the, liberal, the left party at the time. Um, so that that you know right the next year is is uh, you know uh, fundamental. Um, twenty twenty four could be interesting because uh, Ocasio Cortez is eligible to run for president um, in that year. So we you know there's st- there's still some interesting fights to come. Yeah, I definitely heard some interesting news about her possibly primarying one of the two New York senators right now. I'd be very interested to see that. Uh, mm-hmm. But, Ryan, thank you so much for joining us. Really appreciate your uh, you spending your time. All right, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. All right. That was Ryan Graham, author of the book, We Got People. From Jesse Jackson to AOC, the end of big money and the rise of a movement. Obviously, the uh, DC Bear Chief at the Intercept as well. Thank you so much for listening. I wanted to do a little bit longer uh, interview with him, but still, it was an absolute pleasure. So glad to uh, get some of that out um, and really be able to talk to a pretty smart journalist, pretty smart guy. And yeah, but go by, by the way, buy that book. I know I will. So yeah, thank you. That's That's about all we got for you today. We have a standard news flash coming your way later this week, probably around Saturday coming out for you. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. And by the way, if you know anyone who is a reporter who likes to come on the show, please contact me on Twitter. All right, really appreciate that. Um, yeah, we'll see you then. This has been Newsflash 316, an interview with Ryan Grimm.